Nyata, hello, my name is Alison, and I pastor a little church in southwest Victoria called Sanctuary, and we're based on Pequorong Country in Warrnambool. And today I'm riffing on the parable of the talents, and you'll find it in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. Who profits? Who pays? These words were daubed in bright yellow paint on a wall near my old house, and I read them every time I walked past. Gradually, they sank in, until they became the fundamental questions I bring to everything. The news, theology, a sermon, a decision, and, of course, in my reading of the Bible. And so, for example, last week I read that private companies frequently suspend welfare payments for often spurious reasons. So between April and June of this year, 2023, Nearly 240,000 job seekers had their payments temporarily suspended by the very same companies who make money out of these processes. And then only 10% of job seekers' phone calls are being answered. So, I wonder, privatisation of welfare. Who profits? Who pays? I ask the same questions of trickle-down economics and of stage three tax cuts or privately owned prisons or the bombing of a hospital in Gaza. And I ask the same questions of an absentee landlord who expects his staff to make money while he's away. Now, most of you will have heard spiritual interpretations of the parable of the talents. In such a reading, those Christians who don't use their money, time, resources and abilities to generate dramatic outcomes for the kingdom have only themselves to blame, and they will experience God's vitriolic anger and judgment. But nothing in the parable says that the wealthy person is God. And so let's see what happens if we assume that when Jesus is talking about talents, he is actually talking about money, because that's what a talent was, a colossal unit of money over a million dollars in today's terms. And in this story, two people double their money in a very short space of time. So, who profits in this story? Who pays for that profit? And how? And who then is truly wicked and lazy and worthless? And which character is most like the God we worship, that is the God made known in Jesus Christ? I invite you to wonder about these things as I riff on the story and retell it in a modern context. Perhaps we'll end up in a different place. And if we do, then where you go from that place is entirely up to you. So make yourself comfortable. It's time for a story. Once upon a time, there was a billionaire. What with the collapse of an overseas stock market and a royal commission and a great deal of lobbying to protect his interests, he'd had a pretty hard year. He needed to take some me time and chillax, but before he went away, he called in his three chief investors. Now he turned to the first and gave him $5 million to play with. And then he turned to the second and gave him $2 million to play with. 
and then he turned to the third and gave him a million dollars to play with. And then the billionaire went up to his helipad and flew to his private yacht and sailed for the Bahamas. Now the first investor was a real wheeler and dealer. Thanks to his timely donations to major political parties, environmental controls had been relaxed. Companies began extracting oil from tar sands and fracking near schools and building an enormous coal mine near the Great Barrier Reef. And his energy investments shot through the roof. Thanks to his canny lobbying, governments were locked into contracts which guaranteed profits for energy companies. And so despite a downturn in usage, consumers continued to pay and he continued to make money. Thanks to his careful manoeuvring against wind farms and solar power and rebates, small energy producers were driven out of the market. And so in this way too, his investments in big energy continued to pay excellent dividends. And thanks to his creative accounting, he was able to funnel the profits offshore and pay no corporate tax. And over time, he doubled his investment. He made another $5 million. The second investor put his money into manufacturing. And since the relaxation of import tariffs and the migration of work to special economic zones, his investments had also been performing well. In Cambodia, when workers fainted and even died from exhaustion, there were always others willing to take their place. In Bangladesh, when one factory collapsed and killed a thousand workers, another factory and another thousand workers took their place. In China and Guatemala and India and Mexico, floods of workers made t-shirts and jeans and sneakers and smartphones for less than a dollar a day. And the branded products were sold in the West at enormous profits. And so his astute approaches to investment soon paid off. Over time, he too doubled his money. He made another $2 million. The third investor, well, he was afraid. As a young man, he had been energetic and ambitious. He had pleased his billionaire boss, but something had changed. He continued to invest by day, but with an increasing sense of unease. And at night, well, at night, he was haunted. In his dreams, he heard the groans of those who worked all day or week or month or year and were still hungry and poor and wretched. In the mornings when he checked his portfolio, he found himself thinking of the garment workers in Indonesia and the tomato pickers in California and the technology workers in Shenzhen, all who slave for other people's gain. So when the third investor received the million, he felt a bit sick. He thought back to the global financial crisis. His boss had taken a government bailout and had used it to award himself a $40 million bonus. Meanwhile, he'd let thousands of workers go and foreclosed on hundreds and thousands of homes. Only last week, while being driven to a meeting, the investor had glanced up from his iPhone and he'd noticed an encampment on land zoned for redevelopment. 
Little children were playing among tents and broken bottles and plastic bags. And he had realised that this was their home. And in that moment, a fragment from his mandatory scripture class had come to mind. For the Lord your God is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and he loves the stranger, providing them with food and clothing. He thought of his boss, a man who holidayed on his yacht while his staff worked 90-hour weeks. A man who pushed down wages and cut costs at every turn. A man who undermined or ignored environmental and workplace safety laws. A man who took government handouts but paid not a cent in tax. And he thought of all the times his boss had been angry and had screamed obscenities at his staff. And he remembered watching the spittle fly as he called them good-for-nothing slackers and worse. And he wondered, why do I work for this man? He thought of the work itself. He was tired of slaving at the office all day and sucking up to clients at night. He hated the person he was becoming, ruthless like his boss, cruel to his underlings, merciless in his investments, and never, ever, ever satisfied. And he wondered, what am I really hungry for? And he thought of his home life. He was exhausted by all the racing around, the spending, the travel, the accumulations of worry and stuff, and no room just to sit and shoot the breeze. And he wondered, is this the only way to live? While his head was spinning and his stomach churned, unable to think straight, he stood up. He left the office and went for a walk, for it was in walking that he often found a semblance of peace. And he paid no attention to where he was going. He let his feet guide him. Eventually, he wound up on the other side of town, near the entrance to a big supermarket. And at a table in the food court, he saw a ragtag bunch. There were tired women and ratty kids and weather-beaten blokes, a few addicts, disabled people, support workers and the like. And they were all listening, listening to a storyteller. As he drew near, he heard the storyteller say, you can't serve two bosses. You'll hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life about more than food, and the body more than clothing? And then the storyteller broke open a pack of Tim Tams and shared them with the group. The man paused. The words and the action were balm. And then the storyteller looked up and their eyes met. And in that instant, love poured into the man. He rocked back and his eyes filled with tears. It was too much. Grinding his teeth, he turned on his heel and strode home. But that night in bed, he tossed and he turned, trying to sleep. He punched his feather pillows. He twisted in his linen sheets. He adjusted his silk pyjamas. But the problem was not the bed. He was being kept awake by thoughts, by a self at war with self. 
by questions which spun around and around. Who is my master? he asked. What do I serve? Well, he tossed and he turned, his mind racing. But as dawn broke, things became clear. He rose, showered and dressed with a strange sense of calm. And then he went to the office. He looked around at his colleagues staring into their screens, their foreheads frowning anxiously, or shouting into their phones, red-faced and panicky, or checking their accounts, eyes glittering with greed. And there and then he removed his master's money from the stock market, and he took the money and put it in a safe deposit box and hid away the key. Sometime later, his boss returned. What have you got for me? he asked. Quaking in his boots, the man said, Here's your money. Take it. I knew you were a harsh man, grabbing at what you did not plant, taking where you gave nothing. So I opted out of your rotten economic system, and I put the money where it could do no more harm. While his boss blew his stack. I own you, you lazy, worthless punk. At least you could have invested my money with the bankers, so I got interest. And then he ordered then he ordered the million to be taken away from him and given to the one with ten. And then he fired him. The man returned to his desk and found security waiting. They gave him a cardboard box already packed with his personal possessions. And then they stripped him of his pass and his phone and his laptop and escorted him out of the building into the street. The man went home so quiet in the middle of the day. He kicked off his shoes and he threw off his suit. And then he dug around until he found his gardening shorts and a ratty old shirt and he found some battered sneakers. And he left the house and headed to the other side of town, where the other side of us all live. He walked among the hungry and the homeless, the strangers and the weirdos, the dropouts and the deadbeats. He walked among the chronically ill and the chronically unemployed and the chronically convicted. And as he walked, he looked. And he hummed to himself as he went walking and looking. A man in search of a storyteller. And that's the end of the story. Make of it what you will. There's always more to read on our website at sanctuarybaptist.org. And this reflection was prepared on the lands of the Pequorong people of the Eastern Ma Nation. It's a land which is taken by force and has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The peace of the land, waterways and skyways be with us all. Amen.